Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 34 of Not Artificially Sweetened, this free podcast service brought to you by the CDE Teaching and Learning Academy. Many thanks to those of you who have given us a like and a share on your favorite social media platform. Remember, this podcast can be downloaded on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. With me, as always, Michael Brown. Hello, everyone. So pleased to be back with you. Michael, another in-studio guest this week, and we'll get to speak to our guest, John Hay, in just a moment. And as always, it's time to reflect on what's happened from a clinical perspective, both in our clinic and in the world of diabetes. Well, one thing I wanted to chat about, and it's not a review of any literature, it's a practical thing, that is keeping in contact with your diabetes team. And for me, that falls into two major categories. One is routine, regular contact, and the other one is the emergency contact. I think for this week, let's chat about keeping in contact with your team on a regular basis. We've talked about quite often on this podcast about the difference between acute and chronic approaches to healthcare. And certainly in diabetes or chronic healthcare, the emphasis is on prevention rather than treatment. And so therefore, keeping in contact with your diabetes care team in a proactive, preventative manner is likely to stop a whole lot of pain, discomfort, and hassle. Remember that we also advise a team approach for diabetes management. So you may want to keep in contact with various members of your care team as needed. So you can keep in contact with your team either by phone, by email, by WhatsApp for some people. There's many ways we can do it. But ideally, this whole thing is about working in a preventative manner in the community. So emergency care is not the norm in good diabetes care. And our consultations are usually by prior appointment. First step is to make sure when your team may not be available for routine care. And this may include things like weekends and public holidays. Importantly, your diabetes care team members are busy. Remember, there are very few people who specialize in the area of diabetes. And if you're trying to contact your team member, they may be in a consultation when you give them a call or when you email. So please allow them that latitude to get back to you. And they will do as soon as they can. To facilitate that, just leave a message and your contact numbers very importantly. Your diabetes care team members do care about your health and they will make every effort to return your call as soon as possible. If they don't, they will also welcome a reminder from you. So we encourage you to become fair weather friends with your diabetes care team. Don't only seek help when the storms come. We are here to help you to avoid the storms. And I think that's the important message for this week. 
Great message, Michael. We spent much time over the last 33 episodes talking about how big that team can be. We've also pointed out, and we've had two studio guests that are clinical pharmacists, and in fact, they are likely to be the person seen most regularly in the day-to-day provision of diabetes care. And often, as we heard from our gentleman down in the Western Cape, an oracle of wisdom in terms of availability after hours. Availability aren't always maintained, as you said, from a clinical point of view, but pharmacies are often open on weekends and in the after-hours setting. It's clear that there's a big difference between the urgent need for care and the routine care. And one of the things people with diabetes often express at the time of the consultation is, I can't believe it was six months ago, it felt like yesterday they were sitting in the office taking their shoes and socks off to have their feet examined as part of a routine consultation. And when you look back at people who've got very thick files, who've been under your care and the care of the team for two, three decades, you really realize how longstanding many of these relationships are. And I think that's fabulous because it speaks to one of the great C's that we've always spoken about here. And that's continuity of care. And in that light, it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest for this week's podcast session, John Hay. Now, John receives his care for diabetes here at the CDE in Houghton and had been a patient of the late Professor Larry Distiller for decades. John, I'll wave it to say that your clinical file in the era of note keeping is probably a good three to four inches thick as a testament to my late colleague's ability to keep notes. Well, welcome to our show, John, and as we like to allow our guests just to tell us a little about themselves and we can get to hear your story in just a moment. Yes, well, good morning, everybody. My name is John Hay. I live in Randburg, Johannesburg. I'm 72 years old now and I've had diabetes for 53 years now. John, you've got a fascinating story in respect to diabetes, and we've deliberately invited you onto the show because we haven't had a kind of diabetes in inverted commas that you're going to share with us. Just for the sake of our listeners out there, we know that the bulk of diabetes that will be diagnosed throughout a year typically is that of type 2 diabetes. Perhaps 10% or there around of all diabetes is type 1 diabetes. And practitioners involved in diabetes care will see lots of women who are pregnant and have so-called gestational diabetes. So John, if I look through your clinic file here back in the day when Larry was involved in your care, you were a person who was diagnosed essentially as type 1 diabetes. How did that come about? How did you get into diabetes right back then, 50 odd years ago? It all started off with me doing a medical insurance. I'd just come out of the Air Force doing my ACF, and when I wanted to take out a policy, they told me that there was something wrong with me. So I went to see my local GP, and they diagnosed me with having sugar. I was in hospital for about two weeks while they tried to determine what sort of medication I would have to go on. In those days, the method of testing was nothing like it is today. It started off with yellow litmus paper, testing your urine. Also, the insulin that we had those days was only long-acting Lentard insulin. So that's what I went on to. And I think it must have been about five or six years after that that I met Larry and was under his care. And what happened then was that he said to me one day that he's doing some trials on some tablets and he'd like me to participate in the trial. I was on the Lente insulin as well as these tablets that he gave me. So I was taking both of them and one Saturday afternoon, my sugar started plummeting. It was so bad that I drank four liters of Coke Mm -hmm. and it was still hovering around about two. Mm -hmm. I was feeling terrible and then I called him up and he said to me, look, you better get you to Rand Clinic straight away and let's see what's wrong with you. Anyway, by the time I got to the rooms at Grand Clinic, my sugar was up in the 15s. But it had taken three or four hours to go from almost zero to 15. I spent the night in the hospital and they monitored it and then it came down. What he said to me was that I should stop taking the insulin and just take the tablets. 
That was well and good. I survived on a tablet and then eventually the tablets were too much. So I came off everything. I think that period lasted for about three years. Which he termed was a honeymoon phase because the insulin was increasing and coming back again. So I went back on the tablets and I've been on tablets now ever since. John, that makes for a fascinating tale and we're going to get into it even further because you are telling us and our listeners that you were a person who was completely well, diabetes found by sheer chance, you had come out of a vigorous training program at that point in time, were presumed to have type 1 diabetes and John, is it fair to assume in those days because you were serving in an Air Force that you were fit and in excellent physical shape? Yes, I was. You know, at the age of 18, 19, especially when you're in the services, you are fit. So yes, I was very fit. So in those days, it was absolutely appropriate that your diagnosis was commensurate with type 1 diabetes. Although a lot of listeners will tell you, and listeners, if you are happy to share your thoughts of diagnosis and your experiences, mm-hmm. please don't forget to email us at podcast at cdediabetes.coza. And John, you didn't present in the typical fashion that many people with type 1 diabetes do, and that's ill. Presence of thirst and weight loss, massively high blood sugar levels, and the presence of ketones and often nausea and vomiting suggesting that. Nonetheless, you were hospitalized for what these days seems like an inordinate amount of time, 14 days. Weren't you bored while they stabilized the blood sugar? Yes, I was. Most of that time was spent injecting an orange with about a, a needle that you would use on a bull or something like that. And wow. remember those days there was no disposable syringes. It was all glass syringes kept in a everything stainless steel dish and one had to wash it out before injecting all the time. And <laughs> if you were on the road, one would have to take your insulin in a cool box to keep it cool. Because yeah. I was doing commercial traveling at that stage and it was very difficult, yes. So yeah, it was boring being in hospital, but those days we were just under a GP and I don't think they'd seen much of diabetes at that time in the hospital where I was and that was in Krugersdorf. Michael, let me ask you this as a person who had a long professional nursing career. You take a well person and you put them into the hospital setting for two weeks. What's not good about that? It's an excellent question, Stan. So one of the principles of chronic care is that we do everything to keep the person as well as possible in the community. What happens psychologically as soon as you put someone into hospital, now this is assuming they don't need hospitalization, is that you create negative thoughts within that person that, wow, I'm really sick and that this is really serious. Now, that's not to discount the potential seriousness of a diagnosis of diabetes, but for most people who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, they should never, ever see the inside of a hospital. For most presentations of diabetes, we can manage these quite successfully and safely, more safely so, both from a physical and psychological point of view in the community. And we should do this. We should do everything we can to do this, especially with the modern day treatments we have and the great monitoring technologies. I think that was one of the issues back in the day home glucose monitors were not available and that to do a laboratory analysis of blood glucose took a lot of time and therefore you wanted to make sure the person was in the safest environment possible. Change in technology should change our approach. And so nowadays, whenever I hear of someone being admitted to hospital for diagnosis of diabetes, my heart sinks because it is mostly unnecessary. When I joined the CDE nearly 30 years ago, Larry Distiller taught me that. And we've had many thousands of newly diagnosed people who've never entered a hospital environment and never been exposed to those potential psychological harms. But this story, I think, gives us a fascinating insight into another form of misdiagnosis of diabetes. We commonly think of 
type 1, type 2 and gestational diabetes. But there are in fact many other potential causes of diabetes. For example, chronic abuse of alcohol can result in a form of pancreatic diabetes. And what we're talking about here is another form. So Stan, maybe just take us through from a clinician's point of view, what you see here? What is the difference between this type of diabetes and the other more common forms of diabetes that we see? So John's form of diabetes is something that if you go and look for, you will find right. a condition called monogenic diabetes. In other words, single gene abnormality. Mm -hmm. Historically, this was referred to as MODY diabetes, capital M-O-D-Y, mature onset of diabetes in the young. Now, back in the day, type 2 diabetes, particularly when I was at medical school, used to be referred to as senile diabetes, <laughs> an old person's mm. diabetes. And you really were diagnosed in your 60s, 70s, even in 80s. And diabetes in those days was much, much more compartmentalized. You either were this or you were that with little in between. So here's John as a lean gentleman in his late teenage years, presents completely well with none of the typical symptoms of type 1 diabetes, right. and is kept in hospital for two weeks, stabilized on insulin, and eventually, by chance really, has an opportunity to come off insulin and goes on to an oral sulfonylurea medication. So John, by definition, has monogenic diabetes. Now, for our listeners' purposes, and let's get back to John at this point in time, John, monogenic diabetes, when diagnosed, behaves exactly as the way you've described. One of the key features of it is under the age of 30, usually with first presentation, not requiring insulin treatment, as you say. But John, what you haven't told us about, and we're very keen to hear, tell us if there was any family history, because if it's monogenic, it generally goes grandfather, father, son, or grandmother, mother, daughter. Tell us, John, your family legacy in that respect. Well, my parents never had it. So I guess it could have been with my grandparents who all died very young. I didn't even know them. Most of them died before I was born. So probably in the grandfather or great-grandfather, I'm not sure. So we recognize that in the presence of monogenic diabetes or MODI for perhaps many of the listeners still familiar with that term, that there doesn't always have to be a family history because the first person who develops this condition may be the first one to develop what we call a sporadic mutation. In other words, it happened for the first time in that person in the case of John. However, I will say this, when you often speak to people with diabetes and listeners, perhaps you've had this experience as well, people will often say, you know, doc, back in my parents' day or my grandparents' day, nobody looked for diabetes. And because they died at aged uh, 55 or 65 or 72 from a stroke or heart attack, and remember in those days, the survival wasn't half as good as it is today, mm. diabetes may have been manifest, just wasn't looked for. And perhaps if one had scratched the surface a little deeper and the access to healthcare today is much greater and more widely available than it was then, diabetes may in fact have been manifest. And Michael, I will say this, and it's not a term we use lightly, that the monogenic forms of diabetes in theory do represent a milder form of diabetes because whilst there are six or seven subtypes of the MODI variation, some of them progress very, very slowly. They need very little medication over the lifetime and groups of people with MODI will be somewhat protected against the long-term complications of diabetes, unlike the more typical type 1. John, do you know what kind of monogenic diabetes you had? Larry obviously had this presumption. Was there any kind of expensive speciality testing that was done to aid in the diagnosis? Yes, well, let me tell you the story of how it happened. I was fortunate to have Larry as the doctor for both of my children. I've got a son and a daughter who are now in their 40s. And both of them got diabetes when they were around about 19, the same as I did. So I was fortunate enough for Larry to see them until they decided that they were leaving South Africa and going to live overseas. 
They went to the UK and what happened was that the doctor that was seeing them on the NHS there said that it's unusual that brother and sister have got this and then they told him that I had diabetes as well. And he had bloods done and sent to Exeter University for analysis. They did gene mapping on it. And that's when they found out that we've got the HNF1-alpha variation. They asked me at Exeter when I would come over to the UK again to go and have the same gene mapping done with them, which I did a few years later. And it was confirmed that all three of us have the same gene deficiency. That's when we first knew what Modi was. So, John, what you've described then is two generations, yourself and both of your children, having manifested the identical condition. I'm presuming, John, that they were of lean body size at the time of their diagnosis being made. Oh, yes, yeah. So that's important, Michael, because you have two young people, both in their late teenage years, neither of whom are large body size, have a first degree relative, in this case, their dad, who himself was diagnosed with diabetes at a young age. So it was absolutely right for the people in Exeter to undertake this testing. And what John has described here is that the DNA analysis confirmed one of the more common versions of Modi, in this case, the HNF1 version. And in fact, John, you bring up an excellent point that the University of Exeter were the first and perhaps the best university in the world at the moment who pioneered the research into monogenic diabetes, thanks to a gentleman there called Professor Hattersley. I don't know if your family have had the pleasure of meeting him. He's been out to South Africa a couple of times and really a wonderful character, a giant in the world of diabetes medicine. Yeah, yeah. What I'm interested to know, John, is for your diagnosis and differently to your kids, what happened in your headspace where you learned that you had had this diagnosis of type 1 years later? Larry says, well, you know, we got it wrong and just as well and never mind the jabs, here's a pull. <laughs> How did that sit with you? Well, it was quite welcomed, you know. I mean, <laughs> nobody likes to sit and inject twice or three times a day. Taking a tablet is far easier. And fortunate in our case that it works out very well. The levels are well within range and it's so much easier. So it was welcoming to know that you could go into tablets instead of on the needle. And I think this just reminds us of the rapid and continual progress in diabetes the idea of Modi was first postulated around 1975, probably just after your diagnosis or around that time. And previously, before that, it was unknown. And this is just, again, a reminder to health practitioners that you need to remain upskilled in diabetes for you to be able to practice effectively in this field. Because what we're seeing here with John is someone who was put onto insulin therapy, like a number of other people with the condition that he has, but actually all he needs is a low dose of a sulfonylurea drug. And that can make a huge difference in terms of the daily self-management burden for that person. Michael, one of the disappointing aspects of care for monogenic diabetes in South Africa, or at least the presumptive care, is that widespread and easily available and inexpensive testing for monogenic diabetes isn't available. Mm -hmm. Some of the commercial laboratories are currently offering this, and it's uncertain to me if those tests are processed in-house or perhaps done around the world. But if there are listeners out there who hear this tale today from John and it resonates and said, listen, you know, that sounds like me, that sounds like my family, drop us an email at podcast at cdiabetes.coz and we can put you onto the commercial laboratories, specifically those who have an interest in monogenic testing, and you must get a quotation for the testing because it's certainly something that attracts a fair cost 
Now, very often in medicine, we don't generally advocate testing just for the sake of it. The testing must be done with the intent of acting on that result. And in John's case, even prior to his diagnosis, his clinical condition was already the giveaway that, you know, thankfully Larry's insight in those days really got him off insulin. Mm-hmm. So if a diagnosis of monogenic diabetes is confirmed, then the practitioner must act on that result and take the leap of faith sure. and saying, look, this class of oral medication is a wonderful class, life-changing in essence. And it's certainly worth a try. So I think we've said in the past that perhaps as many as one in six or one in seven people diagnosed with type 2 diabetes have in fact late onset type 1 diabetes or larder diabetes. So again, it comes down to making sure that the diagnosis of diabetes is correct, because as John has told us, the implications can be life-changing. And in his case, and it wasn't the same for Captain Jonathan Collins, who was flying commercially these days, but had John's diagnosis of diabetes been made prior to his Air Force Academy entry, he would have been denied access in those days and would have lost that opportunity to undertake air flight. John, it begs the question at this stage, and forgive me getting personal here, but because you are the grandfather in this equation, your kids, do either of them have children of their own? Yes, I've got four grandchildren, two from each of my children. John, what are your kids' thoughts on the genetic testing now in the family, knowing that there's a high propensity for that DNA to be passed on through the generations from now until the kingdom comes, so to speak? Well, we know that there's a 50% chance of my grandchildren getting it. The initial thought was that they weren't going to have them tested. They would rather wait until they reached the age when it appeared in us. They said there was no point in doing a test now and worrying about it because there was nothing that one can do anyway. But subsequent to that, my eldest granddaughter has just been diagnosed. So now there's four of us in the family. John, how was she diagnosed in essence? You yourself were picked up coincidentally as part of a medical. This young lady, how was her diabetes detected? You know, coming from a family with diabetes, her mother is diabetic, her father's an endocrinologist. They stay in Boston in America. So it was pretty easy for them to pick up symptoms and just do a home test and see. And she wasn't well and they did a test on her and it was confirmed. Thanks for sharing, John. And she's getting on okay with it, on oral medication, no doubt, similar to yourself? Yeah, she is. And she's handled it very well. I mean, having grown up with her mother having it and seeing what happens and the types of food that they eat, she's accepted it very well. Michael, it's always pleasing to hear how resilient, particularly young people are at the time of diagnosis, in Mm. this case, monogenic diabetes, or even type 1 diabetes. And from what John's described here, wonderful family support, which also adds much to the management of diabetes. We can talk pulls and jabs, uh, you know, till the cows come home, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but to be surrounded by loving family, supportive family, you spoke of the broader diabetes care, John with all his insights. So really this family set up for success in that sense. I wish that were the case for everybody out there with diabetes, that they can enjoy the support from people people in their immediate and in their somewhat outer circles for their diabetes. No, I agree. John had spoken of a 50% chance of transmission within the family. I just thought I'd explain a little bit why that would be so. We talk about monogenic diabetes, which means there's a single gene that is involved compared to type 1 and type 2 diabetes, which are referred to as polygenic forms of diabetes. So there, there are multiple genes involved and there is a necessary interaction with environmental triggers. 
type 1 diabetes, there may be infective triggers, stress-related triggers, and so on. Type 2 diabetes, gain in excess body fat around the tummy, and so on. These interact with the genes to cause the expression of the diabetes. So monogenic forms of diabetes are referred to as autosomal dominant, which means that they don't need a double dose of that gene to be expressed. It means that if you have it on one of your chromosomes, that change has a high chance of being expressed in future generations. So I just thought to clarify that. Stan, as a clinician, what would you be looking at in your mind as you see a person newly diagnosed, a young person newly diagnosed with diabetes? How would you start your triaging in your mind to say, I'm looking at type 1 diabetes, monogenic diabetes, or type 2 diabetes in a younger person? How would you discriminate between those forms? Well, exactly as we learned from John's case, context matters. Right. There's a very big difference between a sick young person who's presenting with massively elevated blood sugars, nausea, vomiting, and all the features of diabetic ketoacidosis, mm -hmm. fruity breath, rapid breathing rate, compared to the well person who comes in from a shopping center open day on World Diabetes Day, a medical insurance jack-up, executive medical, or perhaps picked up coincidentally by the school nurse. That's the first thing that goes through my mind. Mm. And when you take a medical history from a person, whether you are an ear, nose, throat surgeon, or you work in a busy diabetes clinic, you're always asking about the family. Right. You're always asking to understand what runs through this family. In South Africa, there are many ethnicities who carry a high risk of high cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes that one can think of. So if you're hearing a story that a grandparent developed diabetes and they perhaps were of a lean build at the time of their diabetes, they were under the age of at least 40 at that stage, then one is already beginning to think that this sounds something different to the norm. Mm. Very often in type 1 diabetes, key here is most often there's no family history. Yes. Look, there may be, particularly if the dad is a person who has type 1 diabetes, we mm -hmm. know the risks are great. And then on clinical examination, you know, there are many clues, particularly on the skin that one can pick up in young people who are at risk for type 2 diabetes. But the person who's otherwise healthy and well yes. shows no clinical stigma of uh, type 2 diabetes. We spoke before, Michael, about this particular rash that you see at the back of the neck, acanthosis, nigricans. That would be a clue to type 2 diabetes. So mm -hmm. you're beginning to think as the person walks into your office and you start taking a history, context matters. And if it doesn't fit the bill, mm. plea for clinicians out there and people involved in the diabetes team is think outside the box because if that hadn't occurred in John's case, he would have been confined to an insulin component and perhaps his kids would have as well. And the legacy effect would have been passed on to his granddaughter. So it's been exceptionally liberating both to hear the story and for this family to have had a clinician there who kind of said, hmm, let's pause, let's reflect on this. And the learnings can emerge for everybody in John's family and for our wider audience here today. Thanks for that. Stan, let's talk a little bit about prognosis compared to, say, type 1 diabetes in terms of future complications, possibly. It's a great question, Michael, and I want to get John's thoughts on this first. You know, John, after having been diagnosed as not having type 1 diabetes and having monogenic diabetes, did Larry spend time with you and discuss the perhaps different implications and what the future would hold now versus what perhaps the likelihood, I'm talking in those days, of type 1 diabetes outcomes were? No, not really. We never really got into that. One of the things that is interesting is that when one goes and has the eyes done, normally as somebody that's had diabetes for 40, 50 years, there is problems with leaking in the eyes. And it's been fantastic with mine because they're almost perfect. And people that do it for me that don't know me now, like if there's a new technician in the center, they can't believe what they're looking at. That's wonderful. And that means your hobbies of refurbishing old cars and playing golf can go on unabated. Yeah. 
So, Michael, to answer your question, what John is telling me is that he has excellent diabetes management. It's been made easier for him as a result of oral anti-diabetes medication. And the other thing that his type of monogenic diabetes has is a low propensity for low blood sugar. And unfortunately, we know that the key side effect of insulin use, whether you're a person with type 1 diabetes using insulin during pregnancy or a person with type 2 diabetes on insulin, the risk of hypoglycemia or insulin is ever present. So it's refreshing that this form of diabetes has less likelihood, if not no likelihood of that manifesting. You had asked about the prognosis and yep, I guess collectively as a group, monogenic diabetes could be classified as milder versions of diabetes. And by mild, one means that they are easier to manage, that the likelihood of a small blood vessel disease complications are less likely, but it's no less important to maintain optimal diabetes management. In this case, whether it be by a pill. And in fact, interestingly enough, there's some versions of monogenic diabetes that require no treatment at all perhaps Mm. outside of a pregnancy. So they really form the spectrum of conditions that if you see are easy to treat, highly motivated people with the condition who really are doing exceptionally well over a long period of time. And therefore, it comes as no surprise that John's eyes are as unremarkably affected by diabetes as he describes. And that's great. And may that prevail for his family in the years ahead too. Mm. Mm. You know, Michael, my kids are young enough these days, they spend, uh, dare I say, a large portion of their day on social media. And as a family, we're always sharing these posts. And as the year gets close to exams, I'm a trick for my older son. And, and one of the posts that was shared, perhaps I think the week before last, was really just about storytelling. And I think if nothing today, John's story that he's told is a lesson for everybody to learn by. The unbelievable wisdom that has been shared makes the collective learning for everybody excellent. And ultimately, behind every person with diabetes and every family member who looks after somebody with diabetes, there's always a story. Mm. And it's worthwhile at the initial consultation, wherever you are in the team, you may land up having to tell two or three team members the same story, but that's where the history lies and the richness and the tapestry that's going to last 40, 50 years in John's case, much like we did with Elizabeth, who's been going with her type 1 diabetes in excess of 60 years. And the key learning for me as a healthcare practitioner is the story is where the answers lie. So John, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this amazing story because it's out there. And if we've done nothing today other than piqued our clinicians' interests and have sparked many of our patients to sit back and reflect and say, hey, hey, that reflects with me. I'm going to ask my doctor about monogenic diabetes. I think then that's been a brilliant learning for us all today. I think so too. And I think the removal of that unnecessary burden in your case of insulin injections for the last 50 or so years has been a wonderful release. Any final words, John? No, I don't think so. I'm just glad that we could eventually get a time to do this together. So thank you both. And thanks for your patience. You're welcome. Listeners, if you've enjoyed the story and want to share your own thoughts and feelings and offer us suggestions, particularly on the survey questions we send you, we'd be delighted to receive your emails. Don't forget to give us a like and a share and hope that you can spread this message of positive outcomes of diabetes are definitely doable. You don't have to have monogenic diabetes to do well and live a healthy and your best life going forward. Mm. I think the key message for us is well-managed diabetes in the presence of a good support structure will give you that prospect of living long and living your best healthy life. Michael, that's partly done because of great advocacy that we have in South Africa. And I think there is an additional message for us this week from SA Diabetes Advocacy. So a quick pause here while we take their weekly message in. 
the Not Artificially Sweetened team is 100% behind diabetes advocacy in South Africa. It thus gives us great pleasure to remind our listeners of the upcoming 2023 Diabetes Summit, which will be presented by the University of Pretoria Diabetes Research Centre in collaboration with the Diabetes Alliance in South Africa. The theme will be Diabetes Targets, Translating Policy into Reality. We will be discussing the implementation of the National Strategic Plan for Diabetes and Hypertension and how we will achieve the targets envisaged. Join us as we explore the role of government, academia, healthcare providers, non-governmental organizations and other players in improving the prevention and control of diabetes and hypertension in the context of integrated and people-centered health services. It takes place on the 15th of November 2023 from 8 to 6 in the evening and the venue will be Future Africa Campus, University of Pretoria, South Africa. Check out the show notes for the registration link. And Kirsten will be back with us next week. So you had to put up with me for another week. But please remember to support the Diabetes Summit for 2023. Michael, these podcasts speed by. It's been brilliant. We're 30 plus down. We have amazing studio guests who we are blessed with who share with us the intimate life stories for us, for ourselves, for our guests, our wider audience. And that inspires me for the week ahead. So let me sign off first and wish our listeners out there a blessed week ahead. And may you remain in optimal health until we touch base next. Thanks, listeners, for joining us. Just to let you know, we'll probably be taking a break over December and January. We need the break. The editing of these podcasts take a significant amount of time, but we will be back with you in 2024 with a whole lot of new content. But not to fear, we've still got about another six weeks to go. Thank you for joining us. John, thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much. Great. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And we will be with you again next week. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important, specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes... The health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!